didn't need a whistle. Um, we're so glad you're back. I don't know if you all are like me, but it's been a long time since we've been in this Bible study together. You know, we finished before the end of, uh, before Thanksgiving, and um, I was reading God's Word and doing devotionals and thinking about Christmas and Jesus, but I'm really eager to be back, and I hope you are um, as well. And um, I don't know if you're like me also, but do you make resolutions? Um, we make resolutions that we're going to eat healthier food because we think that that will be better for our bodies. We exercise because we think that will change our shape. We buy expensive products for our face because we think that will get rid of wrinkles. We do all kinds of things because we believe those things um, are good for us and are going to change us. Um, and what I want to challenge us to do um, and is to believe that God's word is going to change us. And um, I know that sometimes I don't think that when I come to God's word. I come to it and I go, I know this is good for me. I know I need to do this. I have to finish this. I have to check this off my list. Whatever. But do I really go to God's word and believe that he is going to use it to change my heart? And um, I found something. It's a very loose translation. You can go back to um, 2 Corinthians 3 and double check to make sure this is actually you know, legit. My husband says it's legit. In fact, he, he said this passage of scripture is known as the magic mirror. And um, you probably seen this case, but it's when the child of God, and that's us, when uh, he opens our eyes and calls us to himself, looks into the word of God and sees the son of God, and only the children can really see him there, um, she is changed and uh, we're changed by the Spirit of God. We learned so much about the Holy Spirit last semester and how um, He opens our eyes to see our um, darkness, our blindness at first, and then He opens our eyes every day to see more of Him. Um, so we're changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God. Isn't that hard to believe? Um, I'd love to think that all the other things I do would really change me like that. Um, and for the glory of God, you know, we get back to. What is the chief end of man? You know, to glorify God and join forever. So this is an encouragement. And one of the things I especially appreciate about this is, um, you know, most of our resolutions are things we have, we have to do. Do this. Don't do that. Add this. Subtract that. You know, discipline, discipline, discipline. But um, look at this. All we do is we look into the Word of God and everything else God does for us. So... Um, I just encourage us all to believe, because I think if we believe these, that God's word is going to change us, we'll go to it. If we don't believe it, you know, if we don't believe that the sixty-dollar cream is going to really change our skin, we don't use it. But if we believe it is, we're going to use it. If we believe it's going to change us, we're going to go to it. So that would be my challenge to us today. Um, and just a few little administrative things. Um, Hopefully you all picked up the little song sheets. You're going to sing one um, when we get started, and we'll we'll finish with one um, later. Um, I want to also let you know about uh, this just a little handout to encourage us about the power of um, well, interesting listening to God's word, gazing, listening. You know, there um, the ways of describing the way we come to God's word. Then um, this semester, what we've done for you is we put all of the verses together in one packet so that you don't have to collect your verses each week. And um, 
I have this little verse on here for you to remind you. And then if you open it up, the first thing you'll see is a little sticker that goes inside your notebook to remind you of what lesson we're on and when we are on spring break and which weeks we're having lunches. Okay, so be sure you stick that on the inside of your uh, notebook. And then you'll have each lesson, and each lesson will be separate so you can pull it out, just you know, um, take it with you, put it in your purse. I know a lot of us have been doing that um, as we study. And there's also the schedule that, that Karen uh, McCarty prepared for us, just suggesting on Thursday, just read the notes from last week's lesson. On Friday, just read, read, read the scripture verses. On Saturday, just read, 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 ask some questions. Um, on Sunday, you know, again, and then, and then we get to the um, Bible study guide. So what we, we're trying to do is focus our eyes on the text and not on the study guide. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's for you. And then um, just in case people forgot, there is some blank paper uh, on the table for you to, to take notes. And, um, oh, if you haven't already picked up your prayer cards, there's a little basket there for the prayer shower that's on Saturday, January 26th. We'd love for everybody to be there. It's one of the sweetest things we do in this church. It's for, um, and it's <coughs> all of the women, except, um, and your daughters, too. It's a really sweet thing for them to see us pray over these babies that were born in 2012. And if you look at the list, um, you know, every year we're a little off, like three girls and 12 boys, and then next year it's 12 girls and three boys. <laughs> we're, we're at, we're, we still have a few more girls this year. Um, okay, and then um, Sweet Kay's been patiently standing up here. Uh, many of you know Kay because she was our retreat speaker last spring, Kay Gabrish, and um, she also came last fall. We're so happy to have her. In fact, happy to be I made here. you a name tag. But I had to give it to somebody else. Okay. Was one. But, um, I, There's somebody here named Kay Gabrish. That's, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's wild. So we just love having um, you uh, with us. But Kay is the mother of two. Um, she has a son, and his wife and two children are in Africa mm-hmm. right now. And then her daughter, Marissa. It's just married last fall and is now expecting. So that is uh, very exciting. Um, she's going to um, take the talk God's word. Let me just uh, pray for us and then we'll sing. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we come to you as um, daughters because you have chosen us to be yours. And Lord, um, what a blessing that is. And Lord, you have opened our eyes, given us eyes to see um, our sin, to see our desperate need for you, and um, we thank you that you meet us in our need. You meet us by your word and by your spirit, and even by fellowships like this. And so, Lord, we come to you um, longing to be changed into the image of our Savior, uh, longing to bring glory to your name. So might you use uh, your word to do just that in our hearts this semester. And today, Lord, we especially pray that you might uh, teach us how we can come to your word more fruitfully to find more of you in that, to delight in it, to um, to be eager to find you as we uh, come to your word. And might we know that um, as we cry out to know more of you, you um, are swift to answer. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Kate's preparation and her willingness to be with us uh, today. Um, we give this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Sherry. Okay. Um, 
The acoustics in this room, if I remember correctly, are very good. But I have what probably 90% of you have right now going on, the drainage and the junk and everything from the, my doctor said mountain cedar, whatever that is. So I can't, I really am not very, my voice isn't projecting, so can you hear me? Is, can you hear me fairly well? Because if not, you might want to move in just a little bit if you, if you can't. Okay, I um, don't know, I, I, I'm overdressed, right, for y'all this morning. <laughs> okay, I have a real, we start our Bible studies at PCPC tonight as well, So, and I have a memorial service in between this morning with you guys and my night session over there. Um, tonight. So normally the night class, I teach it I teach it on Thursday morning as well. So we'll have that this class that you guys are meets on Thursday morning at PCPC. Um, the Wednesday night class is extremely casual. They have been known to come in pajama pants and you know, warm up. So this is going to look really weird to them, as I'm sure it does to you. So please forgive that. Um, second thing is, I'm going to just talk for about 15, maybe 20 minutes because I really want us to do a lot of interactive work today. I want this to be more of a workshop. We, I came in the fall. How many of you were not here in the fall? Where were you? <laughs> we had so much fun. Um, we, came, we came together in August, I think, or maybe the first week of September, just when you were starting your Luke study. And um, we really, I talked too much, and we didn't really get to do a lot of interactive stuff. So I really want us to do that today. I'd like to do an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. Um, hi, Kay. I didn't see you over there. Um, so let's, let me just talk for a few minutes. And this is all new material that I just prepared, so I'm going to be looking at my notes a lot, so please forgive me. Um, my grandson that Sherry mentioned, I have a son and, and he has two little ones, a 23 month old and a four year old, and they are missionaries in Africa. But my grandson is a ringtail tutor and he, um, when they were leaving, we were going to try to get everybody together for a family picture right before they left. And we had the photographer and we made the mistake with him as wild as he is of taking the picture outside. So he was everywhere and he wouldn't sit still and he thinks that's hilarious. And so my favorite picture of him is one where Christina had run, my daughter and I had run to get him and grabbed him. And when she grabbed him, she just got his jeans, his little jeans. And so she's holding him up by his ankles and taking him back over to the family that's already posed and waiting for him. And the photographer, turned and snapped that picture of her carrying him upside down like that. And he's just laughing because that is so exactly where he would want to be in the family picture is upside down. So I have this picture, my favorite one, this five by seven in a frame in my living room of him upside down. Every time my, I have one, once a month, I have a cleaning lady once a month who comes in and she doesn't speak English. And so I never can really, you know, get it across to her what I'm doing. But every time she comes, she turns that picture the other way. And I'll go, Maria, no. It really is supposed to be this way. Even though when she turns it, he looks like he's levitating, you know, off the ground, which is, which is really pretty apropos. My husband will put his hand on Nate's forehead and go, boy, come out of that demon. Because <laughs> that's who he is. Anyway, my point is this. You can't tame him. You can't make him into what you want him to be. You, you just got to know him. He's, he's really an incredible kid. And she just, she just doesn't know him. You know, when she looks at that picture and she wants to make him into her image of him and what she thinks he needs to be. And the thing is, God has graciously disclosed to us and revealed to us and come, 
condescended and come down and talked to us, talked, baby talked to us, prattled to us, as Calvin said, about who he is. And as Sherry said, that is, there is a sender and a receiver on this radio. And we want to tune our stations to everything else in the world every day of our lives. And we're hardwired, y'all, to tune back to Radio Yahweh. And he's got it, left it right here in your hands. And the fact that you're here and preaching to the choir means that you are women who have come together to study God's word because you know that that's the most important thing in your life. You know that that is the encouragement and the comfort and the help and the strength and the enabling and everything else that is going to get you through life. And, and, and we're going to know him not like we want him to be by studying God's word, but, but who he really is and who he has disclosed and revealed to us. Any relational counselor will tell you that the main problem in relationships is that you want to relate to that person based on who you imagine that person to be and who you want that person to be. How many, how far into your marriage were you when you went, oh, you're really that person? (laughs) Because you don't get to relate to that person on who you imagined them to be or who you want them to be. And if that's detrimental to a human relationship, it's devastating, not to mention sinful in our relationship with God. So that's that's why we're here because our knowing God and our teaching about God and our discussing God in our small groups, that's a big deal, y'all. That's a covenantal act. That is something that we have got to take so seriously and we toss God's name around so casually. You know, you talk about people when they're not in the room in a different way than you do when they are in the room, don't you? I mean, you're going to be a little more careful when they're in the room to say an accurate thing about that person, to handle that with care. And so we come together in Bible study because we don't come here and make flower arrangements or share crocheting tips. We come here to study God's Word. And so, so that's where we are. The chief end of man is not to answer questions about Him or turn the picture right side up. It is to know Him and glorify him forever and enjoy him in that. So knowing God is purposeful, studying God's word is purposeful, and, and everything Sherry told you, it's, it's all knowledge and purposeful knowledge directed toward what? Directed toward what? Toward his glory. And what glorifies him? Being like him. Us, yes, us being transformed into the image of his son. That, that's his goal. That's, that's what glorifies him. And so, so that's, why we're, that's why we're here. That's why we're together. And you guys have been studying Luke. And I told Sherry this morning, I didn't really, we're not really going to talk about Luke today very much. Because, we're not going to talk about him all, really, because y'all talk about Luke every week. And y'all have wonderful teaching and you have great discussion. But I, because I, I read Lisa's notes in her outline and some of the things that she's been teaching on the kingdom and so we want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, you, tell me, somebody tell me what Luke is about. Do y'all, we all have the same ring. <laughs> what is, what, just raise your hand or shout it out. Just shout it out. What's Luke about? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's it. Okay, Alexis, there is a prize for that. What else? What else? Come on, y'all. It's, it's been since Thanksgiving, I know. Y'all remember Luke, right? How to sight out of mind, poor Luke. Lisa, you want to tell me what Luke's about? Details. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's presenting a clear and ordered story all that the eyewitnesses saw 
of Jesus for Theophilus and for Okay. Thank you. Luke is one of those. Luke is one of those few books of scripture that he, where he actually tells us what it's about. He actually tells us what his aim is. He's he's the only gospel writer that has a sequel, so you get that you get that twice. So in, when he continues that on in, in Acts, then when he continues the story of the church after Jesus' death and resurrection, he actually says it again. This is you know he tells us why he's writing this to present an eyewitness account to. The, to the Gentiles, to, to, to show the Gentiles what God's wonderful plan was for the Gentiles. And it's sort of one theologian, I love this, um, I, can't, I probably won't be able to find it in my notes because like I said, these are, this is new material for me. But one of the things he called it was an archetypal quest story. It's, like, it's, it's an adventure story almost, Luke is. It's very different from the other Gospels in that respect. And so you see that this adventure of the hero who has come to um, to to get his to ransom his creation and and that is that is really the story of the Bible and that's we talked last time in the fall about about the Bible being one story and it is the story from start to finish of that it's it's a an epic I was an English teacher for years in high school and when I would teach um, epic tales that that's what it would be about it would be about this young hero always who was on this long journey on this quest. To get his to get to get home usually and and sometimes to get somebody home with him and so you you saw it time after time in um, in epic stories it's always an extended journey it's always a pilgrimage that runs through all these trials and tribulations and so that there's a book called the epic of Eden by Sandra Richter that I commend to you it's um, it's a great book, and she and she talks about the Bible being an epic tale of the hero who is whose one goal, whose one aim is to get his children home. So, because you guys have been talking about kingdom, and learning about and seeing the kingdom unfold, I want I want to tell you, and I told Sherry this morning, there are so many paradigms we could talk about scripture with, with the story, the narrative of scripture, but you can talk about scripture in terms of a kingdom approach. Because that's what the whole story is about. God creates, and in creation, he creates his kingdom, his kingdom on earth. And so you've got this temple garden, and the kingdom is there. The kingdom is there, and he's created Adam and Eve to be his vice regents. And what are they to do? What is Adam told to do? Okay, take dominion. And what is dominion? What? What is its rule? Yeah, its rule. So you see it right from the beginning. You see the king creating a kingdom, and he has put his vice region, his prince, in that kingdom, and he has said, now you rule over this kingdom. Because I'm living in Revelation right now, and we're starting this this week, this tonight, with Revelation 11. It is a picture, it's one of the visions, where John is seeing the end, the end, the end of history. And... Um, and he sees the seventh trumpet sounds and it's all over and the saints are um, thanking God and praising God and the elders fall down. It's, one, it's that great line from Handel's Messiah and he shall reign forever and ever. And you just want to burst into song when you read it. But then, do you know what they say? They say, the elders fall down on their faces and they say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and his Christ and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And then they burst into this thanksgiving praise and they go, thank you, God, for judging these people. Thank you, God, for judging your enemies. And they like four times say, thank you, God, because the time has come and you have judged 
evil and purged it from the earth and you have destroyed did y'all know this was when every time you sing Handel's Messiah now you're going to be going whoa <laughs> because it's a praise of, of judgment it's a praise of him for his judgment but the last thing they say is thank you God for you have destroyed the destroyer of the earth what did Jesus come to do he came to destroy the work of the devil John tells us and so you see this all the way from Genesis to Revelation. So you've got this in Genesis. You've got God creating this kingdom and God putting his king there, his prince there to, to be his vice regent, to rule over God's kingdom and not let... What was, the, what was the role of a king among so many other things? What do you see David do constantly? Why did David not get to build the temple? Because he was a warrior. Why was he a warrior? Because he had enemies. And he was always protecting his kingdom. He was always expanding his kingdom. He was always protecting it, keeping the evil out of his kingdom, keeping the evil out of Jerusalem, the holy city, keeping the evil away from God's things. That was David's job as a king. That was what he was called to do. And so that is what Adam is called to do in his dominion and in his reign and rule over this creation that God has given him. And we don't read that. We don't, but you, it, it's there in the text. We don't, it, God doesn't say now if a, if a snake comes in telling you lies, you're the snake killer, Adam, you do this. But he says, Adam, rule over this. And so Adam's priestly, kingly duty would have been to keep evil out of the garden. So that's, that was kingdom work. That's what Adam was supposed to do. And instead, the snake comes in, and if Adam would have done his job, if Adam would have said, you know what, you're lying, you know what, this is all wrong, you know what, you're evil, and I'm supposed to be able to tell that because I'm supposed to be able to protect God's kingdom, and you want to usurp God's rule, and I can see that right now, and so he would have dealt with that right then and there, and it would have been over, and there would have been no destruction on the earth, and there would have been no nothing that took the sexual union between the man and the woman that God had created. There would have been nothing that took that in an anti-God direction. There would have been nothing that perverted that, nothing that twisted that. There would have been nothing that messed with anything about the arts. They would have come along, and they would have been beautiful and creative, and everything would have been wonderful. There would have been nothing wrong with government. Nothing would have been polluted. There wouldn't have been self-centered dictatorial people governing different parts of God's creation. Everything would have been as it should have been, but he didn't deal with that evil in that kingdom, and he didn't cast it out. And so you see that happening in Genesis, and then you see in Revelation 11, what are the saints so grateful for? Thank you, God, that you have finally gotten rid of this destroyer of the earth. And so it's a story, y'all. And that's the kingdom. That's kingdom rule from start to finish. And you see over and over again after, I want the one thing I want you to see today, and I tell Sherry, there are so, we could, I mean, I seriously could come here at eight in the morning and talk till eight at night, and then we could all go to bed and we could start again the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. And we could do that for the rest of our lives. And we would never, ever, we would still be touching the hem of the garment of what is in God's word that he has disclosed about himself to us. And so I, I look at y'all and I look at the women at PCPC and any other group that, that we get to be with, and I just want to go, what is wrong that there are only, what, 40 of us here? Why are there not thousands and thousands of people gathered everywhere this morning? 
that, that have the privilege of studying God's Word together. And so we're here, and we're going to see the things that God wants us to see today. But I was, just so you'll know, we're just touching the hem of the hem this morning. We're just, there's so much more we could say. But one thing I want you to see, especially in light of the passages that we're going to look at, is that ever since the snake who wanted to rule, that was his objective, okay? That's what he came in there for. He didn't necessarily want to kill anybody. He wanted to rule. That's why he fell from heaven. If you read Isaiah 14, starting with about verse 3, you'll see that description all the way up through like about verse 15 of how, of how and when that happened. But he's, when he said, I will set my throne above the Most High, I will rule. So that, that was always his intention. And that is still his intention. And that's what you're seeing in Luke. You're seeing that rulership th- threatened, that him laying claim to God's, to God's kingdom, to everything that belongs to Christ. So Satan has no kingdom of his own. It's a usurping parasitic kingdom. And he lays claim to everything that Christ claims as his. And so you have that, that war, that battle that you're seeing in Luke as you go through it. It's all about kingdom. It's all about who's right to rule over that kingdom. And so every time, I have some static clean going on here. So every time after, the, after Eden, after the curse, you see the storyline progress in scripture. And what happens after each thing is this just subsequent attempt after attempt after attempt for the kingdom to be recreated, for God to bring about through man his kingdom. And it always fails, not because God fails, because man is unfaithful and because man fails. And so the next thing you see is the evil men where God looks at the world and he is sorry he created men because men are what? In Genesis 6, men are all evil, men's hearts, all evil all the time. So God wipes out the men who are all evil all the time. And he puts Noah and he says, Noah, build a boat and I'm going to cleanse the earth of evil. And we're going to start over. New creation, new kingdom. What happens? What happens? You know the story. Noah gets drunk. Noah is not the second Adam. Noah is not the perfect king. Noah is not the one who will recreate the kingdom and who will bring back and establish God's rule on this earth. And so then the Israelites come along and the Israelites come out of Egypt and God says, you go into this new land, into this promised land, new creation, new place, new kingdom. You get rid of the evil in that land. Same thing. It's over and over and over. Same thing. You go in, you get rid of the evil, you establish the kingdom of God in that land. What do they do? They don't do it. They don't do it. They have an incomplete conquest. They don't get rid of the evil. They don't do what God is doing. Again, David, sit on your throne, rule in righteousness over this kingdom, this visible manifestation of God's kingdom that I have given you. And what does David do? Same thing. And so over and over and over in Scripture, you see these patterns because God works in patterns and in their faithful patterns so that we can see what he is doing to replace the rule of ungodliness with godliness. And over and over again, it fails. Until what? Until Luke. Until the Gospels. Until you see Christ come in as you're seeing him now. And even though you're just, you're seeing the last three years of his life, you see him come in with that goal to fulfill, to, to establish godly rule and establish God's kingdom on this earth. And that's not even the end of the story because he leaves and he's still making promises when he leaves after his death and resurrection and ascension. And he's saying 
there will be a coming kingdom, a consummated kingdom, and it will purge this world of evil. It will be my reign on this earth. There's only, there's four very, very unique chapters in the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And you know what makes them so unique? The bookends of the Bible, what makes them so special? They're the only chapters in the Bible where there's no sin. And that's what Christ has come to do in Luke. That's what you're seeing. As he overthrows the opposition of evil, the the same Satan, the same beast in Revelation, the same opposer of God and everything that is God's rule, as he comes in and fights him again and again and again to establish God's kingdom. And that's that's what's going on um, all through Scripture. That's the story. That's the... Um, that's, that's the front-to-end story kingdom-wise, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. The Bible is a front-loaded story. We've talked about this in the fall. You've got to always respect the sequence of the story. You've got to always go back to what happened in the very beginning that is causing this. What is going on here? Redemption presupposes that there is something that we need to be redeemed from. And so you've always got to go back, and each, each part of the story builds on the, on the part that came before it. And each subsequent event or covenant in the story built it comes from the basis of the one that came before it and then the one that comes after it will will take it even further and so that's why i just i i harp on that so much that we've got it we've got to read your bible as a story and here's why it's like a play shakespeare was right the play's the thing it's like a play it's playing itself out there are these dramatic characters in it these role these role players in it these people in it and we we tend to read our bible in so many women who study the Bible tend to read their Bible as a little truth statement A and truth statement B or this little moral bit or this little devotional bit that we're going to cross stitch and hang on the wall and it's a story and you cannot have one part of it without the other and we're going to see that in just in just a minute. So a couple of things before we before we go into this and before we start looking at an Old Testament passage and then hopefully we'll have time for a new a New Testament passage. Um, about interpretation and about uh, type, about typology, um, about God and how He makes Himself known. Who can tell me how He makes Himself known in Scripture? By His, what? Y'all don't whisper. Tell me. <laughs> by His what? By His names. Somebody says by His name. By His mighty. By His names. Yes, His His covenantal name is is what in the Old Testament. Yahweh, his covenantal name, his, his, his name Elohim is God. He, could, he was powerful, he was creator, but his, his covenant with his people, so his kingly, his kingly names are in there and then his covenant names are in there because, because he's the king, but he's the covenant maker. And so he's, he's the kingly covenant maker and he's the covenant making king and he's the kingly father and he's the fatherly king, and he has all these things to his people. He's what what we call that, what theologians call that, is, is transcendence and eminence. But that that's God's that's God's roles in in Scripture. And so here is this king who doesn't just call for for submission to his rule. He enables you to submit to his rule. He invites us to participate in his rule, to participate in his program, to inhabit the role that he has given us to play. Y'all, the Bible ended 2,000 years ago, but the story didn't. 
redemptive acts are over. There is only one thing left to happen, and that's for Christ to come back again. But the story didn't end. We're still there. Do you, can, do you know how many people played a part in the Bible story that are not written down in Scripture? For 400 years, there's a gap in intertestamental history where the Bible is silent, but there were some incredible saints of God during that time. The Maccabees, the, Hamas- the Hasmian family, and, and different people that played huge, huge roles in God's story. Do you know that as you sit here today and as you leave here today and go to the grocery store and take your kids and go to the carpool line and do all of the things that go to the mission field and do the things that God has called you to do in the story. You are inhabiting the story. That's why it's so important that we know the story. The story is worthy of our knowing. It's precious. It's worthy of our knowing the ending. It's worthy of our knowing his intentions. It's worthy of our knowing his story so we can inhabit our role. We're not the tree in the school play. We have we have something to do. We have something to, to contribute and something to to, I think, at least I read it in your notes, I think the very last thing you said on that was do something. And it's, uh, that's, that's it. That's so true. We're, we're transformational kingdom citizens. And so we're, we're doing that. So that's, that's what we're going we're gonna to look at. Um, he is king. He is ruler. He is covenant maker. He's all those things. And we could go through the whole scripture and talk about him as king. Um, but I have, um, I have a professor at, at Covenant Seminary that, who says that he, he says it's like God gives you his business card. And on the front it says, almighty maker of heaven and earth, Lord of hosts, creator of the universe, you know, all these. And then he, you turn it over and he says, but here's my private line. Call me. Or here's my cell phone number. Call me. I, this is a very irreverent professor, but he's really, but he really makes his point. So that's that really is what God is saying. So we're going to look at His name in one of these passages um, where the emphasis is on His name. We're going to look at what else? How else does He make Himself known to us in Scripture? By His mighty acts, by His acts and His deeds. He, you know, we we can't just study the attributes of God as if they're the elements of a periodic table. We have to, we have to see those attributes. If you just say God is power, that's not, that's kind of an abstract thing and a philosophical idea. But when you see him working in power in his people's lives, then you understand what it means that God is power. And so you see him working in these mighty acts in the Old Testament so much in these characters' lives, in these historical narratives, and, and, which is what we're going to look at in just a second. And then you see, so you see his names and you see, his, scripture is, is, is very much emphasizes his names and his mighty acts are the, are the two ways that we know him, that we know him most. And we also, you see him in relationship to his people. And you'll, you'll see that a lot in what we're going to do too. Um, all right. So that, enough about all of those things. I want to see if I can get you. There was a couple of things. Lisa, I, was, I, I loved your... Um, Paige Benton has done that kingdom elements that she did at the Gospel Coalition. I've heard that, heard that talk several times, and she did basically that same talk, I think, and I noticed that you had borrowed from her, as I always do, because she has taken stuff from... Um, Al Walters, have y'all ever read Creation Regained, or do you have that in your book? That's a, a really good one. And O. Palmer Robertson, and both of them have talked a lot about that, the kingdom. When you read the parables of, the, of Luke and you see that we are the net catching fish, we are the yeast working through the dough, we are, we are the kingdom citizens that are, that are still continuing on the story 
Um, it didn't. End, the story didn't end in Acts. The story didn't end when when the gospel went to Rome. It's it's still going on, as you know. And so, and so it's a it's really a challenging uh, worldview for us to see that God, you know, the stage is is still there, and we get to take our place on it, and that we live between the times. We, we're living in this interadvental age, and it calls for innovation. It calls for um, consistency too, though. Because we we take our cues from the faithfulness of how they walked and um, and see that and we 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 like to kind of get comfortable in our world and, and none of them were comfortable in their worlds and I'll tell you that um, I've told those of you that I've talked to you before about three years ago I think when do we get Nate he's four so a little over three years ago. Um, we adopt. We always say we. Jeremy and Christina adopted Nate from Ethiopia. He was eight months old, and he. I, I determined he was our first grandchild, and I determined that I would not be one of those grandmothers who was like all my friends who were grandmothers already, whose very life revolved around the grandchild, and they were at every soccer game, choir concert haircut, anything the kid did, you know, they're there. And I thought, I'm way too busy for that. That is not going to happen. And the minute they stepped off that plane with that kid, who just, you know, had these enormous brown eyes and totally won my heart, it was over. And I I was there for everything. And um, it was about, mm, probably he was two, he had just turned two, when Jeremy called one night and said, I have got some really exciting news. Christina and I have been called by God to move to Ethiopia and work in Soto Christian Hospital with four other doctors over there and and make our lives there and serve God there. And y'all, because we don't have enough time this morning for me to go into the psychoanalysis that I needed as I lost my mind over this thing, I will tell you that that, what consumed me right then, besides grabbing Nate and fleeing the country with him, was not what God might have for me to do as a kingdom citizen and not what he had for my son to do and he had to do a paradigm shift in my thinking and that is what Luke does for you that is what seeing actively Christ come and say to people follow me participate with me get on the bus grab the props that you've been given take the doctrine that you've been taught because all that is is instruction for living. That is your instruction for holy living. The Bible calls that wisdom. The Bible calls that, put that into practice. We don't get to say, well, I just need more spiritual formation. Your kingdom work, your citizen in this kingdom living is your spiritual formation. God will see to it. You'll get it. He will make sure that happens. We love to say, well, I don't want to run, I just can't run ahead of God on this. We love to say that. What do what does that mean? What the heck does that mean? You can't run ahead of God. You're not that fast. He'll knock you down. We love to say that about what things we don't want to do or things we can't imagine God would call us to do. And so I know that y'all have been talking about that because I, I read your notes faithfully, Lisa, and I'll just, I'll tell you this as we go through. That is what application is. Application is you take that head knowledge and there's, there should be no disconnect ever, ever, ever between head knowledge and heart knowledge. You take that knowledge and you perform it. It's performance knowledge. It's not head knowledge. And so that's all application really is. We always want to know, how does this apply to me, me, me? How is this about me? That's how it's about you. You take what God is showing you and say, now what do you want me to do with this? Just tell me what to do with this. Show me what, how my heart needs to change here. 
And so that's all it is. It's, it's him communicating himself to us. And y'all, there is always, always, always an appropriate response, always, to what God teaches us. So there's never a, I don't see any application in this passage. And believe me, when I'm trying to teach Revelation 11, where there's two witnesses and they get killed and they're dead now and they rise and stand on their feet and Darwin's <laughs> notes have helped me a lot and they stand on their feet and they're breathed life into and then they watch them go up in the air. Okay, where's the application here? How's this about me? Okay, it so is, but we won't go into that right now. But what, what I'm saying is, it's there because it's always there. There is always an appropriate response to anything God teaches you. There will be to what he's about to teach us this morning from this. Interpretation. Say about four minutes on this, and then we're going we're gonna to move to an Old Testament passage, and it's going to be, where's my reader? She's not here this morning. Wow. Okay. Who else likes to read? Oh, my goodness. Okay, great. That is fine, yes. We're going to read, I think we're just going to do 1 Samuel 4 through 6, and then we're going to do Revelation 3. And don't panic, it's not a vision, it's a letter. That part is the letter. Okay, all of Revelation is a letter. But that the, the, the real letter letters are in those first um, couple of things. Okay, I want to say just a couple of things first, and then we're going to sing this song. Interpretation. We, we have to be skillful interpreters of Scripture, interpreters of Scripture, because as I said a while ago, that is a covenant act. Everything that we do when we open our mouths to speak about God is, is covenantal. It is serious. We are painting a portrait for Him, for ourselves and for anyone who is listening to it, whether it's your children or a class that you're teaching. And we all come to Scripture with certain glasses on, and we need to be able to take those glasses off. Sometimes it's age, gender, education, whatever it might be. And believe me, I have never seen this as much as I have this year in in teaching Revelation. And to get women who are coming from all different grids and all different um, viewpoints of the eschatological literature genre is is very very difficult and so but we but god has done that we have we have prayed so about that and god has really allowed us to see things in in these passages that he that he wants us to see and these things are our glasses our our presuppositions our prejudices even sometimes about things and so we have to take those off and we have to come to scripture and say give me the mind of christ give me your mind on this and show me what you think Number one maxim of interpretation in Scripture is authorial intent, the author's intent. What did the original author, and of course you know that's the Lord, but I'm talking about human author. What did he mean to say to his audience? And these are things that we've said already last fall, but we're going to repeat them again, and I know you all hear them all the time. Primary rule of of looking at a Bible passage, what did this author mean to say to these people? Because, you all, they shared his world. They shared his culture, his language, his viewpoint on things. They got the same daily news he got. They understood where he was coming from. They were in his historical situation. So first and foremost, you want to say, what did it mean to them? What, what did he mean for them to hear and learn about God and understand about themselves in this passage? And then second thing is we put it into context, the historical context, the theological context. Where were they? What time is it in the play? Which act are we in, in this drama, in this what is sometimes called a four-act drama? And you, if you're good reform, people can recite those. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Okay, so you've got these four. 
you can add, you can do that kingdom-wise too. Kingdom created, kingdom invaded, kingdom what? You could, as a, you, could use the, you could use the kingdom for all of those and then kingdom consummate at the end. So you've got this four-act play. Some theologians will call it a five-act play. W- what time is it? What act are we in in whatever passage this is we're in? Is it, is it prior to the exile? Is it, prior, is it after um, the exodus? Is it, is it before Christ comes? Is it after Christ comes? You're, you, know what, you know what you're in right now. And then third, because we're going to the Old Testament first, and because we always say that Jesus, the whole Bible is about <laughs> Jesus, okay? It is the story of that hero, okay, from start to finish. Does that mean, this is, we really need to cl- get this clear, does that mean that every story, every bit of the Old Testament is talking about the King Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth as we know him? Think hard before you answer. No. No. It can't, y'all. Does the Old Testament anywhere quote the New Testament? No, it can't. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament. And see, this is where we get typology a little screwy in our minds. What we think typology means sometimes when we say that Moses was a type of Christ or David was a type of Christ, we think that means a kind of Christ, that David was a kind of Christ. Was David a kind of Christ? No way. Did Christ sin? What would Christ have done with Bathsheba? What was David? Why is he a type for us? Why? What is he? He's a king. Was he a good king? He was. He wasn't an awesome, stellar, sinless man, but he was a very good king. Okay, so what about David's kingship and all that transpired during that time then? Is he? He's a pattern. He's a pattern. He is a type, he is a, but a type means a pattern, not a kind of, a pattern for. So he is a pattern for Christ, okay? So this is, this is what typology is. When we say Moses was... A type of. He was a pattern for. Why? He was the lawgiver. Okay, because he Moses was the lawgiver. And so that is a pattern for the ultimate and final and true lawgiver. Okay, that's what the Sermon on the Mount's all about. Because this fulfillment of these patterns is always what? Greater than. Always better than. Okay, the greater Moses. The one greater than Noah is here. One greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah is here. So you've, you've got these patterns because God works in typological, analogical ways in Scripture in the Old Testament. And you see it again and again and again. So you see these patterns for Christ. Not, not a kind of Christ, but a pattern for Christ. And so as you go along, you see that Moses gives the law. And then you see that David's kingship, his pattern, his monarchy, was a pattern for what a good king would rule like. He would destroy his enemies. He would make sure that evil did not come into the kingdom of God. He would do business with the, with the opposer of that kingdom. And so you see all these patterns and all these types. And what were these patterns? Okay, let me just say, like, let's take... Um, Isaac and, and Abraham on the mountain. D, did Abraham look at Isaac and go, oh, this is Jesus of Nazareth? No, he didn't know. He didn't have a clue who Jesus of Nazareth was. He just knew the promises 
and he believed the promises and he knew that they would be fulfilled in a certain way but he had no idea yet about Jesus of Nazareth okay so that what I'm saying to you is we we can't just go try to find Jesus in in the bush we can't just try to find Jesus in the thicket what that is is a pattern for Jesus and what was the purpose of these typological patterns time after time after time after time what did Jesus tell the boys on the road to Emmaus go back to your scriptures son read them again and you will know that they were all about me from start to finish every single pattern that was there was designed for a purpose and it was to make them recognize him when he came y'all the most tragic thing in scripture other than the fall is that the the greater david the greater moses the true sacrifice the true everything came to his own and they didn't recognize him unbelievable that's what the old testament was for every pattern in it everything about it and it's uh, and it's just repeated and repeated and repeated so that when he came they would say oh David's greater son. We, we, of course, you see it when, when Jesus walks, comes walking across Palestine toward the Jordan River and John the Baptist is standing there. And what does John the Baptist say? Behold the Lamb of God. And we just kind of skim right over that. Or we, you know, we feel, we give it our theology and we say, because we know what that means. But think about that. John is standing there. I would have loved to have been standing there because what was it? What was Jesus doing? What had he said? What was going through John's mind where John put those pieces together and the Holy Spirit said, this is who this is, John, and John got it. See, that's what was supposed to happen with everything. That's what these patterns are for. God works in faithful ways. He works in consistent ways. He still does. That's why we can look back at these things and see that Christ is the fulfillment of all of those things. And they show us more about Christ and his work. And we look, y'all, Christ's work and, and his, his person and work, that's the dominant lens through which we see what those patterns were, through which we interpret everything about that. Um, so that's, that's it. The, the, we're going to look in a, in a few minutes and see that history is linear and it's progressive and, it's, and it's, it's moving. And each time God shows that pattern again, that was more and more and more reason for them to recognize him because it's normative Ways. I mean, you're to see this. You're to see Jesus is acting in a certain way. You're to see. You're to see all the things that God's doing. You go, oh, that's God, that's God being God right there. That's God acting like God. We knew that's how He was going to act. We knew that's what He's going to do because that's what He's always done. And they didn't see that. And so that's that's a sad thing about the Old Testament. But we're gonna we're gonna study that and just see how that could have happened. Okay. Sing. Yes. Break. Okay. Well, let's open our Bibles to. Um, we're going to pick it up in Second um, Samuel four, and I'm going to give you the context and the original author's intent and the original audience. Okay, we've talked. I've talked to you before about um, the Old Testament. I I um, love 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 the Old Testament historical narratives. That's kind of where I rather stay, but people want to go to the New Testament a lot, so we go there. But um, I, I think that um, we have t- 
talked about First Samuel passages before. I know I did last year at the retreat, but we're gonna we're gonna go through this um, very quickly. And we need a scribe and a reader. We have a reader. Do we have a scribe? First or second Samuel? Mm-hmm. First. First. First, yes. First Samuel 4. Let me just give you a little bit of background. I'm giving, I, I chose a, this Old Testament passage rather than trying a new book because we've talked about the background of it so much that, that for those of you that have been here, that, that you'll know it. Um, okay. Beginning of the monarchy. So God is doing a new thing in redemptive history on the timeline, okay? So the Israelites have been 400 years in um, Canaan. We talked about that. Incomplete conquest. We talked about that last fall. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. We said it again this morning. They didn't drive out the evil. So the new creation didn't happen, okay? There was no king in Israel. Every man did as he saw fit, remember? Okay, so then you get the birth. We talked about Hannah last time having the baby. Samuel, the kingmaker, the man who God would raise up to anoint the Messiah, the anointed one, which is what that means. And so he was going to uh, be the, the man who would bring the word of God back to Israel because for 400 years they'd been in, in uh, Canaan with no word of God and they did as they saw fit and they did what was right in their own eyes. And so no king, there's always chaos in a life without a king. There's always chaos in a family. There's chaos in a marriage. There's chaos in a nation. We've talked about that before. Um, so you have, without a godly king, without godly rule, without God as the king. And so that's that's what's going on. So now Samuel has been, we don't know when the story takes place, how long Samuel had been bringing the word of God to Israel, but he'd been bringing the word of God for a long time. Was Israel hearing it yet? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe not, okay? Which is kind of where this story's headed. This is a familiar story to many of you. It's a great story. And I want you to keep in mind what we just said about the patterns, the faithful, consistent patterns that God uses in Scripture. Because this one is not, to me, it's not as obvious. It doesn't, you don't, you don't just go, oh, there's Christ. I see it. I see him right there. You don't see it quite as quickly as you do some, some others. And that's why I want to use it because it's so, it's so wonderful. Remember we talked about Hannah and her son and what that story was really about was not Hannah's son, but God's son, because he would have to be the one to reverse and bring, as Hannah prayed, oh, God, you bring life from death. I, I, who, who knew that? He, nobody had ever seen anybody raised from the dead. And then she prayed, you know, about how he was going to be the king, and the king would come, and God's king would come and rule over everything. And so you could, you could see Christ in that. You could see that, that pattern, that thing where, like we said, where he walks across Luke, but the, the book of Luke, and people were supposed to go, yes, we know him, we recognize him. Okay, but in this one, there's there's some patterns that are a little more subtle, but I want you to look for them because they're definitely there. So, um, who will read? We're, oh, read. We have, uh, Bert, okay, I'm gonna, I may stop you if, if we want to emphasize something. I may stop you and just make a comment or something, okay? So the plan is to read through the whole chapter? Read whole four, read four. Okay. Two, uh, why don't we... Why don't we just read four to begin with? Okay. No, you don't have to read it all. Sorry. Read it all. Four, five, and six. Four, five, and six. No, just read four and five. <laughs> <laughs> just read four and five, because I'm looking here, and that is a lot, isn't it? Woo, that's a lot. Okay, just read four and five. Four and five. Yeah. Okay. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines at Aphek. 
The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Philistines defeat the today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. <coughs> so the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Okay, let's stop. <clears throat> All right, now, one of the things we talked about last fall, and I know y'all have been doing is we want to learn to read more carefully. We want to be careful, careful readers of Scripture. And so I noticed that Sherry mentioned that you're going to read it, your passage, and then read it again, and then read it again before you ever even start with a curriculum. Because frankly, you don't even really need a curriculum. You can ask your own questions of the text. And that is the... I, always, I have a real bad habit of going, this is the most important thing. Okay, that is like the third most important thing. Okay, Good interpreters of scripture have got to be good question askers. You've got to ask a lot of questions of the text. So let's see, because there's a lot of things that are going through your minds right now, should be going through your minds, to ask about what we just read. Okay, first of all, we have to put this in context, okay? Samuel's been giving the word of God out, but Eli and Phineas are the chiefs, I mean, um, Hophni and Phineas are the two sons of Eli. Eli is the corrupt priest. We saw him last time we talked about Hannah eons ago. The one who thought Hannah was drunk, the one who didn't see people praying, so he didn't even know what to look for. And he just recognized drunk when he saw it, because he saw a lot of that. And so we, we, we talked about him. He was the corrupt leader, and he had these two extremely corrupt sons. Extremely corrupt. They're having sex in the temple, with the, with the temple caretakers, with the virgins in the temple. And, and all of Israel is talking about it. Okay. We have to go back to the shop. This is where the context is so important, okay? Back in, um, in 3, when the Lord calls Samuel, go back to chapter 3. The Lord calls Samuel. This is one of those stories, you all know it. Little Samuel growing up in Eli's corrupt house with his corrupt sons, and little Samuel's laying on his bed. And the Lord comes and says, Samuel, and he's talking to him. You know the story. I don't need to go into it. And what do we do with that story? What do we do with that? We put it on flannel board and we teach it to our three-year-olds. Don't we? Did you all learn it in Sunday school? Did you grew up in Sunday school? Of course you did. Okay, but here's what we never tell our three-year-olds on the flannel board. We never tell them what it was God said to Samuel when he called him that night and got him up off of his bed. And here's what he said. Then the Lord said to Samuel, verse 11, Behold, I am about to do a thing. This is the first time that Samuel has ever heard from the Lord, and this is what he has to say. I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle on that day. I will fulfill against Eli, your priest and your father figure, all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. And Samuel lay there until morning. Yes, I guess he did. <laughs> that is not a happy one from the Lord. Okay, so here's who we're dealing with. In context, 
We are dealing with a God who we already know does what he says he's going to do, right? And Samuel, above all, knows this because Samuel is a prophet and he speaks only the words of God and God's words do not fall to the ground. And if we read the first three chapters, we would have known that. And so that's, that's where we are in context. So here you have this battle and you have this prophecy and you know all of these things now. Okay, so in context, that's where we are. So now let's read more carefully. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. What do you already know? Okay, probably yes. Okay, again, the historical context of this, and if you were really studying this, you would want to go to some commentaries and see just exactly who the Philistines are because they were Israel's number one enemy throughout the period of the monarchy, and so you see that until David and Solomon subdue them, but you see the Philistines, and here's what they were. They were coastal people who had come in. They fought with iron. They had chariots. Israel had neither of those. Israel was still living in the Bronze Age, literally, and they had bronze weapons, which were soft and bent, and the Philistines had things like nuclear bombs compared to what Israel had. And so there, so right away you see Israel going out to fight the Philistines, okay, and in a minute you're going to see more about that. So, the, so Israel's the provoker here. They're, they're the provocateurs here. So then you get down to verse um, 2, and, they, and so the Philistines said, bring it, bring it, come on. And what did they do? They killed 4,000 men. Yeah, okay, so 4,000 on the first day, probably in the first few minutes, okay, are killed. So this battle is not looking good. So you already know that, okay? And so then, so what did the elders say? The ark. Okay. All right. So, all right. So, already, ask questions of this text. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark. What surprises you about that? What's weird to you about that? Very good question. If the ark was that important, why wasn't it with them? Why would you think the ark should be with them? It's a good question. I mean, it's a good question to ask of the text. Why wasn't it with them? Historically, they don't do battles unless God is with them. Okay. 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 So, you're, so both of you together hit on something. You know, why wouldn't the ark with them in the first place? Since we already know that historically they don't win battles. See also Jericho and everything else they've done, unless the ark is with them and the presence of God was, you know, what that ark symbolized. Okay, so right away we know something about their frame of mind. What was it? They hadn't gone to God first. Okay, they hadn't asked God first. Should we go out? Because you see them inquire of God about battle and about the ark. So if they're not inquiring God, then what does that tell us about them right off the bat? They're not prepared. They're not going to win. They're not, they're not going with God before them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they think they can do it on their own. Okay, they're quite self-sufficient. And so the word of God that has been coming to all of Israel from Samuel's mouth is not really soaking in all that well yet. Okay, so you see that. Okay, any other questions in there? Okay, let's go on. Keep reading. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. 
A God has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. Okay, let's stop there for a minute and talk about this. And then we'll kind of summarize chapter 5. All right, so what happened? What's just happened? What are your questions? What what comes to your mind? What jumps out at you? What's repeated in here? What's, what's emphasized in here? They were slaughtered again. <coughs> okay, so again, they're slaughtered this time. And they came. They didn't ask God. They went and got the ark, but they still didn't ask God. They are still not asking God. Okay. They kind of saw it as, I think, maybe as an idol, kind of like the calf. Yes. So that it was almost superstitious. Yes. Rather than really the presence of God. Okay. So, so like a talisman. Like if we just have God's furniture, God has to show up. You know, it's like it's it's, it's superstition is a good word for it. Which which yeah. If, if we have a bumper sticker on our car, okay. So now you're thinking in terms of your own lives. And, and, I'm, and I don't mean I'm thinking in terms of my next-door neighbor. I'm thinking in terms of me. If I'm teaching, you know, I'm good. I'm teaching. I'm teaching the Bible. I'm good. God has to show up. I'm, it's okay. doesn't matter how I talked to my husband last night. doesn't matter what's in my heart about my son being in Africa. doesn't matter any of those things. I, you know, I'm, I'm teaching the Bible, and I'm sure God's impressed by that. Gotta have the ark. That's their strategy, and we all we all have those strategies, right? We all have a strategy. We all 
They're all something that we that we know that God will show up in this crisis because I've done X, Y, or Z. I've I've fulfilled my part, and so that's that's their ultimate ace in the hole. Do you have one? I mean, we all we all do. We all have one that we we must, even if we don't think we do, because when something awful happens to us, we think, wait, but I. I'm pretty sure I was doing everything right. You know, I'm pretty sure that I was obeying God, and so we've all got that. And so they, they're, you know, surely God won't make me look bad. And see, what the Israelites always thought was, He won't dishonor Himself. He won't let them slaughter us because that would make Him look like a loser. So He's, we've got that superstitious protection thing going on. Now we, okay, but what happened when the Benjamite? Benjamite came and told Eli. What happened? Look at look back at verse um, eighteen. Well, he shows some care and concern for for God because he he's more concerned about the ark of God than about his son. Exactly. Like it's the ark being captured that sent him to his death. Exactly. Okay. Great observation. It's in verse 18. The key to what she just said. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward and died. You know, never mind that his both of his sons are dead. He didn't fall over backward and die when his sons were when he was told his sons were dead. But the ark of God. Yeah, we have no conception because we're not Israelites in that century of what the ark of the capture of the Ark of God would have meant to them. That was that was God's mighty presence in there. That was, you know, the things that were in there, the tablets, Aaron's budding rod, the manna, those things that were in the Ark of God. I mean everything they're 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 so stunned that the chief priest falls off his chair and dies. I mean that is so and the and this daughter in law dies in childbirth because she can't even believe it. And what does she say? She doesn't say, oh, my husband has left me forever. What does she say? The glory, the glory, the glory of God has departed. So these two people in this story, you see, do have a conception of and do have an understanding of what the catastrophe that has just happened here. Okay, so if, if you, you know, you have to read more and more about Eli, but you could, you, you really can see that understanding of God and His will. Because they're like, well, they brought God into the camp. Let's go beat them on worse. Yeah. Exactly. They're fortified. Okay, that's um, that's a really good point. What a God has come into the camp. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us? Look how misinformed the world is about God. Look at, the, look at how the unbeliever sees God. Look at verse 7. <clears throat> verse 8. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Yeah. These are the gods. They're kind of, they got some information. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians. Okay. We're still dealing with plural gods here. With every sort of plague in the wilderness. Okay, this is such a typical statement for the world to make, for the unbeliever to make. Okay, these gods struck the pl- struck the Egyptians with plagues in the wilderness. <laughs> Were they in the wilderness? No. So all this little, these crazy misinformation, these little tidbits, these sound bites that they have about God is so is so typical of of the unbeliever and of the world. 
And so they think, you know, hey, we can handle this stuff. We can handle this. And so they and so they do. So then let's go on to, to five because this is so are y'all done at eleven thirty, is that right? Okay, we're going to save the New Testament for next time. So, because I want you all to tell me what the main idea of this passage is. If, if we were just going to teach 4 and 5, if we were going to take it apart and we don't have a curriculum, all we're going to do is we're going to figure out what's in here and we're going to teach it and we're going to apply it to our lives. We're going to have principles in it. Y'all have already given several wonderful principles, truths about God, universal truths about God that we need to know. Okay, we know already that the unbelieving world looks at God and has what? misinformation and a total misconception about God. We already know, so we, we have principles about us and we have principles about God. What, what do we already know about God from this? Because 34,000 people, God's people, have just been killed. So what do we know about God? He keeps his word. And he can't be manipulated. Okay. Okay, probably your best principle to come out of this little part that we just read is right there. He cannot, he will not be manipulated. He does, these are other principles in there. I don't know if that's the main idea of the passage.